Amen. We want to take our Bibles this morning. We're going to turn to Joshua chapter 3. It's an Old Testament book. should be about the sixth book of the Old Testament as you turn in there. We also have some pew Bibles in front of you if you'd like to uh, look on with us there, if you prefer that. And so we're going to look at the power of surrendered life. And one of the most challenging things that I, a pastor could ever preach about is this. Because we're asking you and requiring you to consider doing something that is kind of unnatural. And why is it unnatural? Well, let me give you an illustration of that. I found out about the plan of salvation, Jesus Christ dying on the cross for my sins, resurrected on the third day, and I needed, all I had to do was receive Christ into my life and heart in order to be a Christian. I found out about that when I was 12 years old. You say, wow, you know, all the grace of God, it's all a free gift. Obviously, pastor, you know, you being, uh, you know, a pastor, well, I wasn't a pastor then. You must have received Jesus immediately. No, I didn't. In fact, it was four years later that I received Christ into my life. Why the hesitation? Well, at first, I didn't get it. I didn't understand it, how something could be so free when the natural man thinks you have to work for it. But the other thing is, I came to the conclusion, the biblical conclusion, that the reason it was so hard for someone to be saved, even though it's really easy, is because we have to surrender our will. You know, I was no longer going to be the captain of my soul. I was going to have to turn my life over to someone else. And even though it was God, it was difficult for me to do. And I think that if we were to be honest with ourselves today, we would say that's difficult for all of us. And so as we open up the Bible this morning... I do want to establish right off the bat that salvation is free. It's a free gift provided for by the death of Jesus Christ. But our ability to resource the power of God in our life, and we've been in a series of messages on that, resourcing the power of God in our life, the power of prayer, the power of the Holy Spirit, power of the resurrection, in order to do that, it depends on a surrendered life. And where we are with God. So we get everything that we need the very moment that we are saved. Everything. However, it is applied to our life as we surrender to His will. Let me show you in the Bible an Old Testament illustration of that. We're going to start in this chapter, in chapter 3, in verse 5, and then we're going to go both ways in the passage. Just to pick up the action and the story of what's going on, um, the Jewish people were captured in Egypt for a long period of time, and they were slaves. Moses came in under the direction of God, and he freed the people of Israel, and they crossed over the Red Sea, and then they were in the wilderness about ready to go into the promised land. But they disobeyed God. God told them to go, and they wouldn't go. They were too scared to go. And so that whole generation died in the wilderness, and their kids now, their children and grandchildren, were now able to go into the promised land. Moses is dead. Joshua has taken over. God has made uh, Joshua all kinds of promises here. And now they're about to go in. And what's going to happen? God's going to part the Jordan River the way he parted the Red Sea. And verse 7, the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all of Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. How is he going to do that? He's going to part the Jordan River like he did the Red Sea. Now, if you're looking at Old Testament typology, and the reason I bring that out is because I think this is pretty cool. 
uh, what, what he's going to bring out here. Um, the, uh, in, in typology, which typology just simply means there's a symbol, uh, for example, in the Old Testament that points to the Christian life. And these symbols are these. The, Egypt is a type of being lost. It's a type of slavery to sin. It's a type of being in the world. The parting of the Red Sea, the Red Sea was a type of salvation. The wilderness wanderings that they had for 40 years is a symbol of or a type of the defeated Christian life, while the promised land, they're about to go into the promised land, the land of Canaan, is a symbol or a type of the uh, victorious Christian life. And so we look at this, notice the command that is given to them, verse 5. Then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. God's going to do something miraculous. God's going to do something powerful. What do we need to do in order to do that? Consecrate yourself. What does that mean? Well, generally speaking, it means to be made holy or make yourself holier, which we really can't do within ourselves. But it means to set ourselves apart, to make a decision, to really to, to have special treatment, to set yourself up for special treatment to the Lord. Now, if we're going to apply this to the New Testament it simply means, consecration means, to make decisions in your life, to surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That is, the master control center of your heart and life. Consecrate yourself. When you do that, then wonders are going to be open up to you. Now, I want us to look at this in three points. And honestly, I have three major points and then a bunch of little points under it. So you have to stay with me. But the importance of it the wisdom of it. Then we're going to look at the rest of the chapter here in particular, uh, beginning in verse 6, and look at the practice of it. First of all, let's look at the importance of it. I mean, you're, we're asking, I'm asking you to do something that God's commanding you to do today, and that is to surrender your life to Jesus Christ, kind of once and for all. Get your hands off of it and let him do something great with your life. We look at this, and we understand that God wants to do something wonderful in our life. He wants to set us a, up for a special treatment in the life. Now, what does lordship mean? It means that I'm surrendering all I know about me to all I know about Christ. The problem is when I get saved, I don't know very much. Now, we all make that decision in general at the point of salvation. And so I'm going to give you three or four reasons why it is uh, imperative that you and I obey this command, and it makes sense to do so. Number one, it's the essence of salvation. Lordship of Christ, surrendering my life to Christ, is the very essence of what salvation's all about. You see, when, before I was a Christian, I was going my own way, doing my own thing. I was the captain of my soul. I was the master of my life. I didn't know very much of the past, almost nothing of the present, nothing at all of the future, but yet I was trying to run my own life. The very moment that I received Christ in my life, I not only repented of my sins and invited Christ into my life, but also I, I worship something new. I worship something different. I put someone else on the throne of my life. That's what salvation's all about. Paul put it this way. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. He said, if you, if you confess Jesus Christ, not just as Savior, but as Lord of our life. You see, 
really what salvation is all about is turning away from being the God of my own life or having something else, whatever it is, something else on the throne of my life, to having Christ on the throne of my life. Without that, you, don't, you simply just don't have salvation. You just simply don't have it. I was uh, <clears throat> doing a paper years ago in school, and the title was, Must Christ Be Lord to Be Savior? And one of the things I did was study the book of Luke, because Luke, the Gospel of Luke, is probably uh, the most uh, exhaustive historical study of the life of Jesus in the Bible. And so I looked at that, and I thought, okay, I, I need to pick out this word believe, believe, uh, you know, for God so loved the world that, you, uh, that he gave his only begotten son. Those kind of verses, John three sixteen. I need, I need to, to really find those, couldn't find those verses. In fact, I could not find a typical plan of salvation in the book of Luke. Unless you take a, a, verses like this. Jesus said to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Over and over and over again, Luke said that. You see, it's about following Christ. Look in verse 3. Here they are, they camp, uh, according to verse 2, camp three days. Actually, they've been in this general area for 40 years. And he commanded, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it about 2,000 cubits in length. That's about 1,000 yards, 10 football fields. If you look at a cubit being 18 inches in which it's generally thought to be. Do, you not come, do not come near it in order that you may know the way you should go. Now, why would you do that? It's so far, you see, you're, you're looking at just thousands of people following the ark across the Jordan River. In order to do that, you can't crowd around it. You've got to have it out there so you can see it. And he says this, for you have not passed this way before. I'm going to send you to new places. I'm going to have you do new things, new exciting things. You're going to go over into the promised land, and you've never been there before, but you've got to follow the ark. What, what was the ark? It was the presence of God in the nation of Israel. In fact, it was so awesome that you couldn't even touch the ark. A human being could not touch the ark. It was in a place called the Holy of Holies. The high priest went behind this curtain one time a year, and he had to have a rope tied upon him, on his waist, because as he went back there and sprinkled blood on the mercy seat for the sins of Israel for the coming year, if something happened that he died, like if he touched the ark, he would immediately die, they could, nobody could go back there and get him. So they would pull him out. Now, that never happened. But it did happen that one man was carrying the ark. They carried him in poles because they couldn't touch the ark. And the ark almost fell, so he steadied it. He touched it, and he died. Because of the awesome presence of God, Jesus had not died on the cross, so no man could get that close to God because of his awesomeness. So the ark of the covenant is not a symbol of the presence of God. It was the presence of God. And so what Israel was commanded to do. He said, consecrate yourself, make yourself right with me, and then you follow me. You follow me into the land where I want you to go. Now, this is not only the essence of salvation then, but it's also the place of blessing in your life. Verse 5, I'm going I'm to do wonders among you. God, God wants to bless our life in this, what I would call the path of blessing in our life. C.T. Studd, an old English uh, layperson and pastor or preacher, 
was talking to his pastor, F.B. Meyer. And F.B. Meyer had a lot to do with um, England's revival back in the 1800s and Dwight L. Moody coming over and, and uh, a lot of people coming to know Christ during those crusades. But F.B. Meyer was talking to, to one of his members, C.T. Studd. He said, C.T., I, I just, uh, I'm just amazed at your Christian walk. You just seem to be so sensitive to God and God's power just seems to be upon your life. How do I, how do I get that kind of blessing and power in my life? And he said, well, is Jesus Christ your Lord? And he said, well, I think so. Yeah, in a general sense, I've made him Lord of my life. Of course he did when he, you know, when he got saved. But he said, but is he in a particular sense? And he said, now, what do you mean by that? He said, for example, as I live the Christian life, God comes to me and convicts me of certain things in my life. He said, I would compare them to rooms in my house. And he pulled out his keys. And they, back then, they had a key for every room. And he said, you know, like these keys of my house, Every time God comes to, to my life as I'm praying, God convicts me of something, and it's like a room that I open. And I walk in, and I turn the light on, and it's sort of like some of our rooms or basements or whatever. When, when the light's out, hey, you don't know what kind of mess it's in, but you turn the light on, and you see the mess. And I, I see the mess, and I see that it's hindering my walk with God. It's hindering what I need to do with God. It's hindering the power in my life. So I turn that particular area over to God. And he works with that for a while. And then he comes along and convicts me of something else. And I open up that door under obedience. So the particulars of God, I keep giving over to the Lord. And, and F.B. Meyer said, you know, I don't think I've ever done that. I don't think I've ever thought of that. He said, well, you've got to think about it. If you don't, then the power of God will be cut off from your life. So, well, what do you mean by that? Well, I don't mean that God will not have some power in your life, but let me compare it to a path that God wants us to take. All right, just for a moment. We're going to take this aisle right here, and I, I don't mean to leave you all out, okay, or you, but this is just the aisles right in front of me. We'll just say this is the path of blessing for your life. This is God's will for your life. It's not just your vocational will. It's your will that you're following God, that the particulars of your life are turned over to him, and he is Lord of your life. He is on the throne of your life. So you're, you're going down through life, and this is the place where God has the blessings and the power of God for you available. Now, let me compare it to a parent. A parent, uh, we, we want to do everything we can for our children, and they're growing up, and, they're, and uh, we, we do what we can for them, but we can't do what we want to do for them if they're not there. If they, a 15-year-old runs off from home and you don't know where he or she is, then you can't be a blessing to them. They're not at the place where you can bless them. Well, when you and I begin to go off on a tangent with God, God convicts us of something and so, you know, here's the next room I want to open up, and you say, no thanks, God. Look, I've changed enough. No, it's time for my wife to change. Or it's time for my husband to change, or my kids to change, my parents to change. You know, I'm, I've done enough changing for right now. We don't say that, but we live that. So what happens with our life? We begin to go off into the wilderness a little bit. And we get off the path, and we begin to have troubles, perhaps, that we normally would have never had. But here's the tragedy of the whole thing. You say, well, yeah, but I'm going to get right with God as soon as I uh, graduate from college and I get married, I'm going to get right with God. Okay, we'll just say that you walked away from God at 17 and you get back right with God at 30. 
13 years you've missed on this path of blessing. And even though you can get back on the path of blessing and get the blessings of God and the power of God way down in your life, you've missed all this pretty much. I mean, there's some things that God is going to give you because it's necessary for you to have them in order to get blessed way down there. But you're basically going to miss all this. You're going to miss the blessing. You're going to miss the power of God in your life. And as you do that, off in the wilderness somewhere, maybe for years and years and years, maybe just for months, but whatever you miss, you're not where God is going to bless you. This is the place where he set it up for you to get blessed. This is your particular path, and we must follow it. And so as we're looking at this, <clears throat> what difference does it make in all the things that we've preached before here and taught in the last few weeks? For example, the power of prayer in your life. We talked about prayer, and uh, we, we ask you to think about something that you really want God to do in your life. And you think, well, sometimes God says no because it's something better. But sometimes God just says no because it's really no. Why? Because there's something hindering the plan of God in our life. I was talking to this lady in my last church, that when I was pastoring at least my last church, she wasn't really a member there. But she was, uh, I was sharing with her a little bit, and, uh, or we were there on the visit. And um, uh, she just said, look, you know, I prayed and prayed for my marriage and for my husband, and he finally <clears throat> left me, and, and we, we couldn't get back together. And I kept praying about it, and God didn't answer that prayer. So we talked her through that a little bit, but I wasn't going to quote this verse to her. I'm not going to make her feel worse like I'm going to make you feel, perhaps. <laughs> but it's easier, you know, when it's coming in a crowd, right? 1 John 3.22, I could have said this. All right, let me ask you something, because I know the answer was going to be. 1 John 3.22 says, And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Have you done what pleases him? Have you been walking with God? Has Christ been Lord of your life? You've been in that path of blessing? She would have had to say, no, 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 no. You see, it hinders our prayers. It hinders the fruit of the Spirit in our life. The Bible says the fruit of the Spirit, as we said a few, two weeks ago, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, kindness, self-control. You want those things in your life. Everybody wants love. Everybody wants peace. Everybody wants joy. It's hindering us when we're out of that path of blessing. Here is the path where the fruit of the Spirit comes in your life. And so we look at this and we say, yeah, but it's just so difficult to let go and let God, so to speak. Well, let me secondly look at the wisdom of this. Why would it be wise to allow relinquish control of your life as foreign as that seems and give it to God? Let me give you just a couple of things and we're going to move on. Because, number one, something is already on the throne. Don't think that no, nothing's on the throne of your life. Don't think you don't worship something. We all worship something. It could be us. It could be your wife. It could be your, your husband. It could be your kids. It could be um, other people and what they think of you. Every time we want fame and glory, we care about what people think of us more than any other thing. So what's on the throne of your life? Something's there. It's not that nothing's on the throne and suddenly you're going to put Jesus up there. No, something's on the throne, and probably it's not really you. Something's on the throne that's serving you. 
whether it's your reputation, whether it's money, whether it's your career, whether it's your spouse, whether it's your kids, something is on the throne that's the most important thing to you. And because of that, it ministers to you more, you think, than anything else. So something's on the throne already. It's not that you're just suddenly creating a throne for God. Secondly, he will help you find yourself. I want you to notice um, the words that I just quoted a few moments ago from Luke 9. Let me finish the passage a little bit. Jesus said to them, if anyone comes at, would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever, listen, would save his life, whoever puts something else on the throne to serve him will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit of a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Jesus is the only one that can sit on the throne of your life and not hurt you. In fact, he's going to help you find yourself. Find your true self. Anytime you put anything else on the throne besides God, you lose yourself. You don't know, you really don't know who you are. Look at the nation of Israel. They came out of slavery. They were raised in slavery. Their kids were raised in slavery. Their grandkids were raised in slavery. They came out to the wilderness. Then they were raised in the wilderness. What did they, how do they see themselves? The Bible says they saw themselves as slaves. They saw themselves as grasshoppers in the, in the eyes of those people that were in the land of Canaan. But they weren't. They were, they were the king's kids. The whole world there in Canaan looked at them with fear because they'd heard about what Jehovah God had done. They were chosen. They were the elect of God in the Old Testament. You see, they lost themselves because God was not, no longer on the throne of their life. And then let me just say this. It's wise because Jesus Christ is Lord whether you make him Lord or not. He's Lord of everything else but your will, our will. We decide on that daily, but he's Lord of everything else. Now, does it really make sense that you would ask the God of this universe who made the world, who sustains the world, who made your your body, who made your mind, who made your your heart, your soul, your spirit, the the one who made the stars and the heavens and the one who made the moon and the sun uh, that helps us daily, He made all this stuff, and you say, God, what I really want you to do is help me to follow my own path. I want you to be my assistant. Could you be my secretary? Could you be my admin? Could you be my uh, vice president in this company? Oh, I'm going to really lift you up to vice president. No, nobody. that, That doesn't even make any sense. The most powerful one in the entire universe would just be called on to assist you. No, but rather God has said, you put me on the throne and I'll make it, I'll make your life worth something. I'll make your life count. I will help you find who you are. And so how do you do this? What about the practice of it? First of all, I'm gonna give you four things and we're gonna close. Number one, you gotta surrender your guilt. Notice in verse six, take up the ark of the covenant and pass on before the people. So they they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. Verse 8, And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. What are they doing here? They're, They're carrying the Ark, and what do they have to do beforehand? It said 
This is why they need to consecrate themselves. And again, to make holy, to set yourself apart, you need to clean out the heart. Some of you have watched these uh, television shows like, uh, um, I'm sorry, let me, Fixer Upper, you know, that award-winning show, I don't know. You know, there's so many shows on now about fixing up a home. But you know what they do before they fix it? Somebody tell me. They tear it down. They tear it apart. Man, they go in here, and they have big smiles on their faces, too. They take a sledgehammer and knock out walls. I thought, hmm, that, no, that's the kind of building I could do, you know. But they tear it up before they can build it. you got to tear it down sometimes. Tear it up a little bit. And look, into, look inside that room and think, oh, look at the sin in my heart. In this area of my life, I, I need to clean out the guilt, to clean it out. Then what you do is then you surrender it, your will. Not only surrender your guilt, but surrender your will to the Lord. It says in verse 9, And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that you will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites and the Hivites, or the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. A lot of sites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each one of the tribes, and when the soles of the feet of the priest, hearing the ark of the covenant, bearing the ark of the covenant, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. Just like the Red Sea. Just like the Red Sea. They were, they were going over into the promised land. They were finally getting there after all that time. What did they have to do? God, I'm, I'm going to follow the ark. I'm not, you know, I really think I got a better path. It seems like to me, God, there's a shortcut right over here. It seems like to me if I go that way, it's going to be, I'm going straight into water? You've got to be kidding. There's no way I'm going to do that. I'm going to go somewhere else that looks better for me. No, if you want to get there, you surrender your will to the Lord. Have, have you done that? Have you had a, a crossing of the Jordan experience in your life? I had one of those when I was 19. I finally understood what the Lordship of Christ was about. And I, you might say I burned the ships. There's a, there's a story, 1519, the Spanish explorer Cortez set sail for Mexico with an entourage of 11 ships, 13 horses, 110 sailors, and 553 soldiers. The indigenous population at his arrival was approximately 5 million, and so that's 7,541 people to one. That's the ratio. Two previous expeditions had failed to even establish a settlement in the New World, yet Cortez conquered much of the South American continent. When Cortez, what Cortez is reported to have done after landing is an epic tale of mythical proportion. He issued an order that turned his mission into an all-or-nothing proposition. Are you ready to go there? All or nothing. God, I'm just depending on you. Here's what he did. He said, burn the ships. And his crew watched their fleet of ships burn and sink they came to terms with the fact that retreat was not an option. Like the old song, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. Have you made that kind 
of surrender in your life. In the book, Out of the Salt Shaker, Rebecca Pifford would liken it to, she says, that the difference between us going all out for God and just sort of playing with it is the word if. God, I will commit you on the throne of my life if you will bless my children, if you will bless my life, if you will give me that job, if you will not ask me to do something too hard. If, if, if. When you take the if out of it and just say, God, my life is yours. I'm taking my hands off my life. I'm burning the ships. I've decided to follow Jesus once and for all. In a general sense, once and for all, I'm following Jesus. And when those, when those rooms, when those convictions come my way, God, the first thing I'm going to do is take in my mind my keys and open up the door and say, God, it's, the room is yours. This new area of my life is yours. Have you come to that place? of surrendering your will. And you say, well, I can't because I can't surrender my fears. I just don't believe God that strongly enough. Now, notice, he goes on to say, when the soles of your feet, this is back in verse 13, of the priest bearing the ark. Now, now this is the reason this is so uh, significant. In chapter 1, verse 3, it says, every place, the promise was, every place the sole of your foot will tread upon, I will give it to you just as I promised to Moses. So that same phrase, sole of your feet. And the promise was this. The priests are going to be carrying the Ark of the Covenant, and they'll be carrying it by these poles. They can't touch it. You're going to come to the Jordan River, and as soon as you touch the Jordan River, the waters are going to part. You say, okay, we'll just go toward the Jordan River and step in it, and if it parts, then, you know, bingo. If it doesn't, okay, well, you know, we gave it a shot. No, that's not it at all. Here's the problem. The Jordan River is not like a beach. You know, you go to the ocean and you step into the water a little bit at a time, a little bit more, a little bit more, and you get deeper and deeper. I've been to the Jordan River a couple of times and even baptized some people in the Jordan River. The Jordan River is very, very uh, short. I mean, the width of it is only about here to that back wall right there, that, that first one. But it drops off like this. You, dro- you, you step in, you're, you're going to drop. Three feet. Now, it was overflowing, according to one of these verses here, verse 15, 16, it was, it was a rainy season, so it was overflowing. So it was a little bit overflowing, but you don't know where you're stepping. You could step into a hole. You could step three feet down. As a priest, you have no idea what you're stepping into. So you take a step by faith and another one by faith. And pretty soon, you drop down, and boy, if that, if that ark fell and touches you, you're dead. They had to face their fears. And they had to surrender their fears to the Lord. And as they stepped in, they understood that faith means I am better off trusting God than going my own way. I really can place my faith in him. You say, but pastor, what about the results? Maybe God will ask me to do something I don't want to do. Duh. Otherwise, wouldn't that be a simple decision? Listen, if God at 19 years old, if God said, look, what I want you to do is surrender your heart to me, put me on the throne of your life. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to call you to the pastor and I'd probably ran the other way. But at the time God called me, I was more than willing to do it. More than willing. God makes you willing. He, 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 he brings your desires to his desires when he's on the throne 
of our life. But he, he's never forsaken me. He showed me who I really was. And so as these people were stepping in to, that, to the, to the uh, river, they surrendered the results over to the Lord. It wasn't an if thing. But, but pastor, you don't understand. Some of the things in my life are, are just not ending up like I want them to. Now, well, have you been following the Lord? Some people would even say, yeah, I really have. But it just is not ending up the way I thought it would. You don't know what God's doing in your life. You don't know the, the butterfly effect. You don't know the rippling effect things are having in your life. There's a story right here in the book of Joshua in chapter 2 that extends on to uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7 about a lady by the name of Rahab. Now, the two spies, what's happened here, they're about ready to go into the promised land, and Joshua sends two spies, and they stay at a house of prostitution. I don't know why they did that, but they were hiding. And a lady by the, a prostitute by the name of Rahab made a deal and said, look, if you'll watch after my family and save my life, I'll, I'll side with you. She made a decision to side with the people of Jehovah God rather than her gods. And that had a rippling effect. How rippling was it, you ask? Let me read to you in the book of Matthew. In verse 5 of chapter 1, it's a genealogy of all things. Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. That was the harlot. That was the prostitute in Joshua chapter 2. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed by the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by Uriah, by the wife Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, Amos, the father of Josiah. We move on. Azor, the father of Zodak, Zodak, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Eliud, Eliud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born and is called the Christ. Through one, and by the way, both Mary and Joseph's genealogy can be traced right back to King David, whose great-grandmother was this prostitute, Rahab, who made a decision that had a rippling effect all the way down through the centuries. You don't know what God is going to do. You just don't know. And so what about you? Makes all the sense in the world. All the wisdom. The wisest thing to do is put Jesus on the throne. He deserves it. It's the only way where you're going to find yourself. It's the only way you're going to have the power and blessing in your life that comes from the resurrection of the Holy Spirit in prayer. Only way. The surrendered life. Salvation's free. But once you get the salvation, applying the salvation will be all greatly determined on your surrender toward him. So have you done that? Would that be the day, today be the day that you do that? A tale was told, Chuck Swindoll tells about it in one of his books, about a man dying of thirst going through a desert. He comes across this house. And in this house was a well. 
He crawls to the back of the well through the sand. He begins to get to the pump. He squeaks, squeaks, squeaks the pump. Just no water comes up. Defeated. He sits down beside the well to die. And he sits near something that's kind of hard to his hand. He looks and uh, separates the sand. And he has a small jug. And it sounds like it's full of water. And it has, a, it has this old note on it. It said, use all the water to prime the pump. It works. Be sure you fill the, um, the canteen with water before you leave. And so he popped open the cork of the jug and he looked at the water and he thought, wow, I could drink this. Don't tell him how old it is. But if I drink it, I'll live for another day, maybe. But boy, if I pour it into the, wa- into the well, in, into the um, pump, I may have gushes of water. So he thought, hey, why not? Pours all the water into um, the pump. And he begins to pump it again. Squeak, squeak. First nothing, and then a little stream, a few little drops, and all of a sudden, within a few minutes, gushing of water coming out and just putting his face to it and getting all the fresh water that he wanted. He fills up the jug, puts the cork back on it, and puts, adds a little note. It really works. You have to give it all up before you get anything in return. So what about you today? God, Jesus Christ is Lord of the universe. Is he Lord of your life? With heads bowed and eyes closed, this morning, I'm going to ask you, if you've never received Christ into your life, if you've never made him Lord of your life, I'm going to ask you, why not? Why don't you pray this prayer with me right now? You can pray it silently as I pray it out loud. And the prayer goes like this. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for going to the cross and dying there for my sins. I open up my heart's door. I ask you to come in. I ask you to forgive me of all my sin. I, I want to put you on the throne of my life. Make you Lord. I burn the ships. I pour all the water into the pump. I pray that you would have it gushing forth with blessings in my life. In Jesus' name.